Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Are we headed for part two of the energy crisis? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Andrea Stino Larson, Real Vision's, uh, my colleague, of course, at Real Vision, our markets editor and founder of Stino Research. Hey, Andreas. Great to kick off the week with you. Hi, Maggie. Great to see you. And and everyone, of course, our, our keen-eyed viewers are going to know Andreas is rocking his slightly new look, which we love. Um, those of you who are listening on audio, you'll you'll catch up. You'll see it. So, Andreas, we had U.S. stocks just closed. A um, little bit of a, a lackluster session. It looks like, um, actually, you know what? I always like to check at the end. And uh, they're a little bit better than they were just a few minutes ago. It looked <laughs> like they were all in the red. Um, but they kind of turned around um, and managed to sort of, for the NASDAQ, a gain of a half a percent. It was down just a few minutes ago. The Russell was the only one uh, that was that was in the green. So a little bit of uh, late buying coming in here. But it seemed like the real action was once again with bonds. Mm. Yields moving higher, 10-year yield at one point, uh, 4.54 percent, high since 2007. Um, what do you, what's your take on the action that we're seeing in bonds? I mean, last week we had a whole series of central bank uh, messages basically all agreeing that we are very, very close to a peak in policy rates. And um, that message uh, was delivered amidst what I call a cyclical upswing in everything related to production and amidst a clear rally in energy prices. And when central banks communicate a pause while everything is smoking hot in commodity land. It is the perfect cocktail for a so-called curve steepener in markets. And the reason is that the market market simply has to do the dirty work when central banks are not willing to do it. Uh, And therefore, right now, uh, right about everyone is um, fleeing the ship uh, in terms of their bond ownership. It's been a clear consensus over the course of the early autumn that uh, the central banks would do enough to kill inflation and that the bond trade would be a strong trade into 2024. But right now, that does not seem to be the case, really. Yeah. So is this, does it feel like capitulation? I mean, and and is it only a matter of time before equities follow suit? How do you see this playing out? It certainly feels like capitulation at this point. Uh, I track the positioning in uh, in bond space, both among asset managers, but also among hedge funds. And they're both very long uh, duration risks still. So they're very long bonds in the US treasury market. Uh, and it is a, um, a tricky juncture to be long bonds at because if energy prices keep accelerating, and it seems like they will, then inflation will not reach target within, say, three to six months from here. That's basically uh, out of the question. And then 
I guess everyone is basically wrong-footed in their positioning and in, and in their views ahead of 2024. Uh, as I said, it's been a clear consensus view that bonds would perform into the uh, winter season here. And uh, right now, that seems to be a wrong view, to be honest. Yeah, and gosh, the bond trade has been so painful for so many. Mm. The, the timing has been off. So this gets very interesting. You spoke with Bob Elliott. First of all, throughout the content series we just wrapped up for those of you who are members and got to see it all crash or boom how to profit what's from what's coming next so we wrapped it but i heard a lot of the concerns coming like too many rate cuts priced in you started to see that bubble up on multiple fronts uh when you were talking when we were all talking with a lot of the experts we had on you spoke to bob elliott as part of that series um and he expressed some real concerns about bonds beyond even the timing issue, I think. Let's have a listen and then we'll talk on the other side. Well, I think the challenge is that, you know, most investors have some version of 60-40, mm -hmm. um, whether, they, whether they like to admit it or not, right? That's essentially what their exposures are. And, you know, what is 60-40 particularly good at? When does it outperform? It outperforms in an environment where, you know, there's disinflationary strong growth. Uh, and instead, what we're sort of seeing here is an environment of, you know, inflationary weak growth, right? Look at the UK, you know, unemployment is starting to rise. Growth is, you know, zero or a little bit worse, but inflation, core inflation, 6%. Look at the US, it's clearly moderating, but inflation remains elevated. Europe, basically the same story. And so if you're in that environment where you're holding you know, 60-40 or some, something related to it, it's not a great environment. And particularly, like what we've all learned, you know, over the last few decades is that bonds are a good diversifier to stocks. And that's exactly the opposite of what's happening. And it's a little bit like, how many times do I, you have to get slapped in the face with the fact that bonds are not a good diversifier for stocks before you finally learn that that is the case? And again, day after day after day, that keeps coming in. I mean, such great stuff. That entire interview was tremendous. Andreas killed it with Bob. They discussed so many important things. I encourage you all uh, to go watch it. Bookmark it if you're on the new site. And if you're joining us on YouTube, this is only the tip of the iceberg. So I met a fantastic uh, fella at our NYC gathering for our first VIP um, New York City gathering. And he said for the longest time, he thought that the YouTube channel was all we did. Okay, that blew my mind. No, no, no. We have an entire platform of content, educational courses, and a network of amazing community members. So if you have not ventured past YouTube, and we love seeing you there, but if you have not ventured past that, you need to head over to, I'm going to say it in case you're listening on audio, www.realvision.com um, and become part of this amazing hive mind that we're building. He really blew my socks off with that. Okay, so um, Andreas. We're, this is a big concept. We've been talking about it consistently here for like probably the last year, but it keeps coming up. And it worries me when when uh, people like Bob say this, that this 60-40, so many people are still using some kind of format and that it, it's not going to work anymore. Where do you come down on this? Do we all need to take a really hard look at our own bond exposure? Yeah. We do. I mean, the big issue here is the bond exposure, because 
typically you want the bond exposure to protect you in times of turmoil. Uh, and really, if you look over the past two to three years, that has not been the case. Every time you needed the bonds, they did not perform. Uh, and therefore, I've kind of switched my thinking around this 60-40 concept. Uh, and in my own sort of medium-term portfolio, I've introduced energy as a new sort of way of protecting my portfolio from downside risks to equity markets. Um, if you look at it over the past, say- Wait, so I think, so Brian, do me a favor, hang on one second with that thought, Andreas, which I think some people are going to say, wait a minute, because energy seems like it's so volatile. Mm. Um, Brian, if you could go on the new platform and pull up some charts, I think Andreas will probably be able to guide us. If you could pull up, because we have charting now on the site, if you haven't been, if you could pull up some charts that might sort of help illustrate what Andreas is talking about. And go ahead, Andreas, if there's one that you'd like, maybe you can guide Brian from here. Yeah, maybe we can pull up a chart on the 10-year treasury rate versus the oil price, because it's been relatively evident, I'd say, since 2020, that oil prices tend to dictate broader inflation trends and they also tend to dictate the sort of pace of rate hikes and everything related to central bank reaction functions and um, now as you can see from from the chart brian is pulling up here we're stuck in a scenario with rising interest rates also in the long end of the yield curve at the same time as the oil price is picking up momentum again uh, and i think it relates to the very tight supply in commodity markets that we've seen basically since the pandemic uh, and the energy markets now being uh, basically in the driver's seat of everything uh, related to central banks and how they react to the economy. Um, and therefore, if you look at it empirically, say over the past five, six years, uh, you either have energy at the very top of the leaderboard or at the very bottom of the leaderboard return-wise uh, on a yearly basis. So energy has been the only clear diversifier of macro portfolios, uh, meaning that in times of turmoil, energy um, tends to perform. Uh, and I think it's essentially exactly what we see again uh, through September here. Uh, energy is, is one of the few bright spots in equity space. Uh, if you look at physical energy markets, they are also up uh, materially alongside this sell-off that we've seen in equities since uh, early August or thereabout. Uh, and that's a very, very interesting mix because uh, it essentially means that every time we're stuck in a situation where there's an, a surplus of demand relative to supply and energy space, energy is your only friend in these markets. Yeah, that's so important. And that's so different. It's such a different world than the one we've been in. Um, Ralph saying energy helped me today. So that's sort of working. And uh, also everyone's things are coming in slightly weird because we haven't migrated into one site, which will be happening within the month. So we're kind of operating still on the beta, but somebody else saying um, absolutely love the new platform. It's amazing. Thank you. We think so too. So uh, what, I, I, before we sort of dig a little bit more into energy, I do want to get one question that came in. Yeah. Um, earlier today in anticipation of it because it's sort of related to the bond side of things. Um, and that is from Gaetan. Wanted to ask you your view on why the spreads are so tight. So if bonds are not working as a diversifier and there's this sort of trouble brewing, why are we seeing those credit spread spreads hang in? It's It's been sort of mystifying everyone. 
so if we look at central banks globally, uh, and now I'm not talking uh, about the Federal Reserve, but I'm talking about, for example, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, etc. They've bought a lot of corporate bonds and they've bought a lot of sovereign bonds. Uh, and most of these large central banks have concluded that uh, it is the time to sell parts of the sovereign bond holdings while they keep the holdings of corporate bonds relatively steady on a global scale. I think that is one reason why we see very narrow credit spreads uh, in a scenario like the current, because obviously we've seen uh, almost mayhem in uh, in sovereign bond markets, both in the UK and the US and elsewhere, uh, while credit spreads have remained fairly orderly given all of this. But it, it goes to show that central banks uh, do support market pricing of corporate risks to an extent that is not healthy, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. uh, in any other case, um, credit spreads would have been much wider uh, by now, but simply due to the fact that the stock of holdings from central banks in credit space remain elevated relative to their holdings of sovereign bonds. I think we have this very narrow spread between corporate risk and sovereign risk, uh, and it is not long-term sustainable, if you ask me. Yeah, that's a great answer, Andres. It's it and it makes a lot of sense and and something I haven't haven't really heard highlighted before. So thank you for that. So when you're talking about energy as a diversifier, are you talking about the commodities themselves, or you know, a, a fund of a, of holding commodities? Or are you talking about energy equity stocks? So I, I specifically refer to the uh, equity stocks. Uh, the one I use is the XLE um, ETF. Uh, it's a broad exposure towards oil and, and gas companies. Uh, it works tremendously well as a diversifier, at least if you look at, uh, at a five-year horizon. And um, the uh, performance in XLE has been pretty decent again in September. It was very decent in, in August. Uh, and it's essentially the only subsector in, in equity space that has been up over the past, say, six, seven, eight weeks here. Uh, so we performed uh, as a diversifier again when it was needed the most uh, through the early autumn here. While if you look at the physical markets, um, you tend to get a lot more volatility relative to the energy stocks. Uh, so you need to, to uh, think about the scaling of your position if you enter physical positions in oil, natural gas, or uh, similar equ uh, energy commodities uh, because of the uh, large volatility relative to the spillovers to the uh, stocks sort of uh, with companies underlying that, uh, that uh, energy commodity space. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. We asked at the top of the show whether we're headed into part two of the energy crisis. And you're sitting in Europe. 
Uh, we, we know what the concerns were last year. They sort of moved to the back burner. What is the status of energy supplies as we turn the corner into the winter? So if we look at oil markets first, um, the demand for oil is now picking up. And as of today, we are in a situation uh, where we use more oil barrels per day than we did ahead of the pandemic. And right about every professional forecaster would have said no to such a scenario back in 2020. Uh, but now we use, say, 102, 102 and a half million barrels a day. Um, and that's a lot um, compared to the supply uh, being stocked below 100. Uh, so there is a gap of, say, two to two and a half million barrels a day, roughly thereabout. That is an issue uh, given that we are no longer in uh, any reasonable uh, sort of control of supply in the West. Uh, the U.S. production is essentially roughly maxed out unless there is a political U-turn around the corner. I don't foresee that U-turn. Um, the supply is maxed out in Norway and other European uh, producers. So we are simply stuck in a situation where we have to rely on exports from Russia, China, Saudi Arabia reaching global markets again. Uh, and Saudi Arabia and Russia have basically agreed to, um, to supply cuts through the remainder of the year, uh, meaning that it goes beyond doubt that there is a um, clear deficit in oil markets throughout the fourth quarter. It's just a matter of how big a deficit uh, it will eventually turn into be. Uh, but there's no doubt that we we simply uh, lack the, the supply to, to match demand through the fourth quarter. We have a few things we can do in the West. Uh, one thing is to release uh, barrels of oil from the SPR, the Strategic uh, Petroleum Reserve uh, in the US. But if Biden decides to match the deficit throughout the fourth quarter, he'll have to release, say, a couple of million barrels a day or thereabout. Uh, and eventually that will leave him, say, 150 days of SPR <laughs> um, left. And that is to me very early to empty the SPR, basically more than a year or roughly a year ahead of the actual election date. Uh, so to, to me, the very cynical analysis here would be that Biden decides to wait until, say, early summer next year or thereabout to release the SPR once again, because he obviously wants to ensure that the price at the pump is, um, is lower or um, lowering ahead of the actual election date. Yeah, so too absolutely. early for him. That's, yeah. I think that's a that's a wide open uh, you, a lot of people share that cynicism with you Andreas. Yeah. Um but but that's the oil market and obviously the oil price currently reflects that um we we basically have one way traffic in in oil and even though it's very visible to everyone and everyone seems to be on top of this story we just keep on adding to that momentum more or less day in and day out at the moment so i i wouldn't rule out that we get substantially above a hundred dollars a barrel through the fourth quarter um this year then we have natural gas and that was sort of the main issue of the 22 energy crisis in my view um we had natural gas prices through the roof, um, both in China and Europe, and to a certain extent in the US. And we haven't really seen a big price reaction in natural gas yet. But I need to remind you that the supply 
of natural gas into Europe is down roughly 20, sorry, 32 to 33% on a daily basis relative to before the invasion of Ukraine, meaning that the demand for natural gas needs to be permanently lower for prices not to accelerate again. The industrial demand for natural gas is down 25 to 27% in Germany, for example, meaning that the German industry uh, is basically stuck in some sort of depression. Uh, if there's just a tiny tick up in the demand for natural gas in Europe again, it will be felt all over the globe uh, because there is essentially a lack of supply to meet that demand. And we actually got some numbers from the German industry this morning, European time, suggesting that there is now early signs, green shoots from the German industry for the first time in, say, uh, a year and a half. And that's interesting because if we get a confirmation that the German industry is picking up just a, a slight bit from here, based on lower input costs, natural gas prices are very low relative to a year ago, then natural gas prices will basically spiral out of control again, if you ask me. And I think that's a very big risk for the fourth quarter. Uh, I would not rule out that we see, if not a replay of 22, then something similar to that happening again in natural gas markets into the winter season here. Yeah, and which will be so painful uh, to have to have to endure for everyone. You know, has major implications for for the economic outlook. Um, not to mention some of those inflation readings. So, Maggie, uh, maybe I maybe I can show a chart on the platform um, of relevance to this discussion on energy uh, yeah. versus Europe uh, and Let, let's, the let's US. Let's get Brian's fingers flying. So, uh, Brian's now getting roped in. Poor Brian. <laughs> he not only has to do all the other stuff, now he's now he's our sort of platform master. But Brian, go, see if you can pull that up. What, what should he pull up, uh, Andres? So the interesting thing here is that there is a new pattern forming in foreign exchange markets relative to energy prices. And we can, for example, pull up a chart on the broad dollar index, the DXY versus the oil price price again. We could have used the natural gas price, uh, but the oil price is, is sufficient as well. And if we look at the relationship right now, it is crystal clear that the US dollar gains when energy prices gain momentum. That is 100% upside down to what we're used to. Say between 2008 and 2020, every time the oil price spiked, it was in conjunction with a weaker dollar because a weaker dollar basically allowed the rest of the world to buy oil cheaper since it's priced in US dollars. But now what happens is that Europe, Japan, China, some of the con uh, countries and regions uh, very reliant on energy imports, they suffer big time every time there is a price spike in energy, meaning that the euro sells off, the mm. Chinese won sells off, and the Japanese yen sells off versus the US dollar every time there is uh, price action in, in oil and natural gas space. So uh, the lesson learned here, uh, if you're watching this show from Europe, is that every time there is an issue in the energy space, you better need to hide out in dollar assets because then you gain from the foreign exchange effect of uh, the dollar gaining versus the euro. It's the same conclusion if you're watching in China or Japan. I don't know whether we have many uh, followers We do. In we China. have our globe, and it's not even <laughs> populated yet because we haven't put everyone on it. But um, you can spin it around and easily see um, yeah. 
where folks are. So yes, we do. We know we do have uh, viewers in Asia. That's a hugely important point. And I think we often forget about the foreign exchange market, but mm -hmm. it is where we see those strains show up, isn't it, Andreas? It is. And um, it is one of the very clear expressions of this relative weakness of countries and regions with a big reliance on energy imports. Mm -hmm. um, I had a discussion with uh, another macro pundit uh, on whether you can even label yourself a country in this kind of environment if you're not self-sufficient on energy because you're you're basically in the hands of of a lot of countries that you don't want to be in the hands of, right? Um, right. So the U.S. is in a much, much, much better spot than uh, peers such as Japan and Germany in an environment like the current. I need to emphasize that. Yeah, and of course, um, you know that is a that is a result of the shifting geopolitical tensions mm. that we've seen um, that you know blew up in our face uh, just over the course of the last year or so. So in in that respect, um, it really highlights these strains that before were not as present. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Andreas, we've got some other energy questions, but I just want to bring this up because I, I feel like, uh, by the way, I should mention, we are hosting a Twitter spaces with Tony Greer and Tracy Shukart, uh, aka Shy Girl, at 5 p.m. Eastern. So they're going to be all over the commodity and energy uh, story. And I know we have some questions about uranium. So set your clock. Um, that's going to happen just at the top of the hour. So that's going to be really interesting and fun. So Andreas, um, I would be remiss if we didn't bring up technology. Can you be an energy bull or have, you know, wanting to have energy in your portfolio and a tech bull at the same time? Or are those sectors tied to different narratives? Because if you live on Twitter, sometimes you think they are. <laughs> if you look at returns in equity space over the past 10 years, in energy space and in tech space, um, they are basically each other's opposite in the sense that if tech is at the top of the leaderboard, you have energy at the bottom of the leaderboard and vice versa. But I'd actually argue that it's the, the exact right portfolio mix to have in equity space anyway, uh, because the point here is that energy will protect the downside in your technology position when you need it the most, while technology is one of the very few sectors able to outpace inflation and interest rates at the levels that we see right now because of the tremendous growth rates that we see, for example, in, in AI and, 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 um, and similar uh, topics within the tech space. So yes, I actually do think that it makes sense to have technology and energy in your equity portfolio at the same time because it is the perfect diversified mix. 
Yeah. And barbell, right? The good old barbell. But it Mm. it makes so much sense given what we've seen. So we have in the news, you mentioned AI, um, news say that Amazon was investing up to $4 billion in Anthropic, right? Rival to ChatGPT. Looks like maybe a little bit more on the enterprise side. Um, Ralph spoke to Beth Kindig last week. Uh, and she had some terrific insights into the AI bull run because we know so many people have been questioning it. Let's have a listen to that and we'll talk on the other side. The impact it will have on GDP as what you're describing is unlike any technology in modern times. And it's because it will drive down costs, increase productivity. Uh, so the contribution there is infinitely higher than something like mobile. And the reason I anchor a lot back to mobile is because we all know that the things if you could have invested 10, 15 years ago in the fangs, you would have. So what I'm describing is four to five X larger than the fangs. Um, so of course, what we're going to do, what will be the result is some massive winners. Um, just like I would call the fangs massive winners within mobile and AI will blow mobile, you know, away in terms of it's not only contribution to GDP, but Uh, You have a $15 trillion market. Mobile was about a four to $5 trillion market. Immediately right out the gate today, we have 3X, but I think that that's very low because it's not incorporating all of the software innovation that we can't even imagine yet. As bullish as she is long-term, really important to point out, she did talk a lot about patience when it comes to finding entry points. Um, And Beth's so great because she has really robust, granular research behind her thinkings when it comes to to individual names. Um, So um, great to hear her give us some thoughts on what companies are in a prime position to take advantage of the AI boom, who she thinks um, is going to be able to sort of optimize on this. Um, Really, really interesting. Again, go over to our website if you want to see the entire interview, including what she likes right now. Um, www.realvision.com. And there's some great offers, which we'll tell you more about as the week goes on. We're going to have a birthday bash on Wednesday. Um, and we can tell you more about that. Um, so Andreas, uh, how are you thinking about AI right now? So I, I sold my exposure, uh, to the AI ETF called VTI, uh, back in late June or thereabout with almost the perfect timing. Um, I'm not as lucky as that always, uh, but it's very transparent. Um, I, uh, I update my, my macro views, uh, and the macro portfolio each and every Thursday in Steno signals on the real vision platform. Uh, and my thinking at the time, and it's essentially still my thinking is that the current momentum in long bond yields is something you need to worry about. Uh, because it is essentially a sign that markets will have to do the dirty work for the central banks to try and stop the momentum in inflation from reaccelerating. Uh, and it's been evident over the past, say, six to eight weeks that at least headline inflation is no longer slowly but surely um, dissipating towards the 2% target anymore. Uh, we are rather headed for plus numbers uh, over the course of the next month or two. Uh, And that is not good news for equity markets, broadly speaking. Uh, And therefore, I kind of protected the very solid returns that I had on on this AI position through the first half of the year. I'm certainly on the watch um, for a a great timing to re-enter, but I want to see bond markets calming down ahead of that timing. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, and again, always really important. We try to, when we speak to everybody, talk about time frame and time horizon, which is mm -hmm. why I really wanted to point out, although Beth is super bullish as a long-term narrative, she is kind of cautious and in wait and see mode, I would say, when it comes to the sort of shorter uh, time frame right now because of valuations. Um, but if you have a long time horizon, great, great to get a read on that. Um, we have questions about nat gas, about uh, a whole bunch of stuff, but we're out of time. Let me try to squeeze one more in. Um, I think this is a really interesting one. Um, this is, uh, do you think NEG Blackburn is asking, any thoughts on Sunak's U-turn on green policy? Will any EU countries follow suit? And what might that mean for energy markets? Um, I don't know. Could it even move the needle given the supply shortfall you're talking about? It doesn't seem like it can, but what are your thoughts? So I, uh, I'm essentially based in the capital of wind turbines globally in Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, we have a couple of the largest wind turbine companies uh, globally based here. Uh, and I can guarantee you that the mood is pretty sour at the moment, uh, to say <laughs> the least. Uh, we've had issues with uh, wind turbine auctions in Germany, uh, the UK, in Denmark, um, just to mention a few countries. Uh, meaning that there is now a call from these uh, companies for governments to sort of protect the downside in the pricing of these projects to a larger extent, because otherwise they're not willing to bid uh, in these tenders. And so far, I haven't seen a lot of movement from these governments to sort of protect the downside in the pricing of these wind turbine projects. Uh, and I'm frankly a little bit surprised by that because the momentum in the green transition and the amount of money that was thrown at this topic from 2020 until, say, early 2022 was tremendous. Um, but now the momentum is waning. And I think it is a matter of uh, fiscal policy uh, being tightened and therefore uh, the governments don't really see it as an option from a risk reward perspective right now to um, to throw more money at this issue. They they will have simply have to wait for broader energy prices to calm down before doing so. Yeah. But by the way, before we go, Andres, you brought up a really fantastic point to me before we came on air, and that is also in terms of so no sort of floor for corporations for the green transition. But you picked up on something interesting that the central bankers were warning about when it comes to energy and citizens, right? Government's actions towards citizens. Fill us in on that. Yeah. So I I, I read, I think, three or four interviews with um, big central bank names today, suggesting that uh, fiscal authorities and policymakers now have to understand that they cannot subsidize their way out of this energy crisis. So they basically warned against um, throwing money at the problem once again. We, we basically had subsidies all over Europe, also to a certain extent in the US, to sort of combat the uh, rising cost for households uh, of rising uh, petroleum prices and all that. Uh, and central bankers now clearly warn fiscal authorities, if you subsidize energy once again, we will keep hiking interest rates even if you dislike it. Mm -hmm. So maybe that leads me to the meme of the day, Maggie. Um, yes, do because it. Because I, I made a meme of Christine Lagarde. She was one of the central bankers, bankers saying this today, uh, stating that unless you morons stop using more natural gas than we have, I will keep hiking interest rates, period. <laughs> Stern warning. 
<laughs> um, but 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 very problematic because um, it's really it's, I'm I'm laughing at your meme, but not at the situation because no. this is only going I mean, to further, uh, you know, push the pain onto citizens. I mean, you know, a lot of this sort of uh, gives pause for what the economic outlook is going to be as we sort of try but, to make our way through the end of this year and into next. But the the the, the issue here is is very real. Um, I think we will see an end to what I've labeled Opranomics uh, this this winter uh, throughout 20 and 21 and also to a certain extent 22. Opranomics uh, is that you get a car, you get a car. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you get an aid package, you get an aid package, you get a bailout, right? Uh, I don't think we have the money to yeah. do so this winter. Well, the bond market um, won't, the bond market, the central banks won't, but more importantly, the bond market, I think, is starting to get yeah. really spooked by these levels of exactly. government debt. We keep talking about sovereign bond bubble that's really precarious right now. So it doesn't look like market forces will allow it either, right? Yep, I perfectly agree. And that's a big game changer relative to uh, one or two years ago. All right, buckle up, folks. It's going to be a, a lot of volatility, which was one of the themes that came through from our series, a lot more volatility ahead of us. Andre, it's so great to kick off the week with you. Thanks for having me, Maggie. Thanks so much. And of course, he'll be dropping his usual steno signals, um, which we look forward to and all the great conversations he has. Thanks to all of you for starting the week with us. As I mentioned, we have a Twitter space is happening. We are hosting at five, all about this energy conversation. So roll up for that. And we've got some great stuff ahead this week, including a really special birthday celebration. It's our birthday on Wednesday. So Raul's going to be here and a bunch of other special guests. It's going to be really fun. So please join us all week. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Thank you.